Good Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today we explore the transformative power of gardens and the incredible impact they have on our lives. We have the privilege of delving into a thought-provoking interview with a garden advocate, author, podcast, and radio host, Jennifer Jewell. In this episode, we'll uncover the impact gardens and gardeners have on our world. She is the host of the national award-winning radio and podcast program, Cultivating Place, Conversations of Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Join us to share her wisdom on the power of gardening and the potential of gardeners to act as agents of positive change. Jennifer believes that gardens and gardeners are not only sources of aesthetic beauty, but they have the power to plant seeds of transformation, both literally and figuratively, contributing to environmental, social, cultural, and economic benefits. Seeds, according to Jennifer, hold the key to transforming ecosystems and sustaining life. The conversations will shed light on some threats, she believes, to biodiversity posed by current agricultural practices. We'll explore the critical role seed banks play in preserving plant diversity. We'll look into how seed bank repositories store a wide variety of seeds, ensuring the propagation of generic variations. Jennifer will highlight how gardens extend beyond individual spaces, connecting us to our wider communities. They break down barriers, build connections, and foster a deeper understanding of our shared environment. Intentional gardening becomes a platform for educating and inspiring others. Jennifer Jewell is not only the host of an award-winning program, Cultivating Place, but also an accomplished author with notable works such as The Earth in Her Hand and Under Western Skies. Her newest book, What We Sow, explores the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seed. Jennifer's passions lie in elevating the way we think and talk about gardening, empowering gardeners, and celebrating the interconnectedness between places, environments, cultures, and individuals. This is episode 141, Cultivating Change, The Power of Gardens, with Jennifer Jewell on the Garden Question Podcast. Jennifer, what power do you believe gardeners possess? It's a two-sided coin, Craig. I truly believe, and all of my work, from the radio program and podcast to the books that I write to the talks that I give, I firmly believe that gardens and gardeners are these really powerful intersectional agents and spaces for change. Now, this can be used in both the positive and the negative. So when I say it, my hope is 
that my work, that your work, that the work of other garden advocates out there are engaging and empowering gardeners to use this power to see it, to acknowledge it, to step into it and use it as intentionally and beneficially as they can. I believe that if we were to do that as a cohort of gardeners in this country, on this continent, in this world, we could make some very positive paradigm shifts for the better for our world. When I say that, I mean it in all spectrum of what our world includes, environmentally, socially, spiritually, culturally, economically even. And yet I also know that used unintentionally or even viewing the garden and its many gifts as uh, an object or a status symbol or a kind of pretty destination every now and then has led to us wreaking some pretty serious damage to all of these spaces in our world as well. The home garden and its associated lawn in the United States, that non-native monoculture turf grass that is overwatered, overfed, overmown, overblown, it adds so much carbon emission, fossil fuel use, fertilizer, pesticides, synthetic chemicals into our water, into our soil, into our neighborhoods. It has helped to diminish biodiversity. It has helped to create social isolation and disparity. We as gardeners are the part of, no, an enormous, like 80% responsible for all of the invasive plants that we are fighting in the United States today are the result of something that's gotten out of control from the nursery trade or the home garden. Then the final point I would make is that from, say, 1950 to 2000, Craig, I really believe that gardening as an economic industry sold the idea to us as gardeners that gardens and gardening was this space of privilege, of elitism, and in many cases of white privilege and elitism. We know it's not true because every culture around the world has gardened in their places during their times, from the ancient Mesopotamians to modern-day cultures around the globe. Everybody gardens. They all do it a little differently. They all do it for slightly different reasons. Food, beauty, ritual, medicine, utility, but they all do it. So to use that word garden, contracted down to its most narrow version of middle-class white American privilege is such a... It's denigrating to the act, but it is also diminishing for what gardens and gardening actually includes in our world today, past, and certainly in the future. So I truly believe, and I know this is a seriously long-winded answer to your question, Greg, but I believe that as gardeners, we hold in our hands the ability to grow the world so much better. And I will spend every breath I have hoping to help that needle. Not through shame, 
and not through lecturing and preaching, which I know I sound like right now, but through, I hope, accessing and leveraging and reminding us of the immense joy and gratification and like pure fun, to be quite honest, that we derive from this act we're called to. As gardeners, we have our own personal garden, but how do we take that power and the, the things that you're talking about, which is universal, how do we take that out in our community? I spend a lot of time thinking about this, and the answer is going to be different for every person. But one of the universal characteristics I have found in the gardeners whom I admire and who do just that, what you just asked me about, how do we harness our love and our skill and our knowledge and our experience of gardening, and how do we put that energy to work at something we care about in the world? What I have found from the women I interviewed for The Earth in Her Hands, my first book that came out in 2020, and that was an overview of 75 women leaders around the world in the horticultural sphere or adjacent to it, in botanical sciences, in public garden administration, in policy, in nursery owners, in plant breeders, in artists, all different kinds of plants people plants women specifically. Every one of these women had become leaders because of that exact formula. They loved gardening. They were skilled at gardening. They were called to, to horticulture in some way. Something in their personal lives also really concerned them. Somehow they put those two things together. They were worried about equity in the workforce. They were worried about female representation in the horticultural world, especially at decision-making tables. They were worried about the impact of international floral trade. They were worried about childhood health, obesity, asthma, and put it together with environmental causes that could be diminished by better gardening methods, better landscaping methods. These women found a way to harness something they cared about deeply to this thing, this act, this relationship that they loved of horticulture. I see us as individual gardeners having every bit as much capacity, whether we want to become public-facing leaders or not. I think about my own little suburban home garden. I have a front garden space, and when I look down my street, I can see 20 houses. Of those 20 houses, there are about five of us who don't have turf lawn as the front garden. My front garden has uh, a lot of flowers for pollinators, a lot of natives, and a lot of diversity. I have one of those great little signs that says, this is a certified natural habitat for native plants and wildlife. Since I put that garden in, since that sign went in, and now we're talking eight years ago, I have met more neighbors and I have had more conversations with them. Even if they didn't turn over their lawn across the street, they at least understood what I was doing and they engage with me about it and they're excited about it. So someone will say, oh, did you see that there's hummingbirds nesting? over there? Or did you see there's a hawk who's visiting now? Or they tell me about things and we are much more communal 
as a result of this very dynamic space. I, I think about parents with children who send their kids to school with plant projects or uh, vegetables from the garden. I think about parents who volunteer or just adults who volunteer in the local school systems to help with a school garden or do a project or teach a class something about plants. I think there are as many different ways to move our personal love of gardening, even in small ways, out into the public sphere that help to share our love, our passion, our knowledge. And it's contagious. We started this conversation by telling you that I had spent the morning making these wreaths from the herbal plants in my garden to send off to my cousins. Like just that sharing lights my cousins up. And they're not great gardeners, by which I don't mean good or bad, but big or enthusiastic gardeners, but they all really appreciate my love of it and they learn from it, they tell me. And so I think the question becomes, what are the little ways you see you can take your garden love and offer it as a gift or an opportunity or just a little ray of light to other people? It doesn't have to be big. It can be as big as you want it to be. Like you could call your local homeless shelter or Audubon Society and say, I have a small backyard. I'm trying to make it more diverse. I would love to have you host your next board meeting here as just a gift of a free place. I think there are just a thousand different ways we can do it. We just need to decide we want to do that. I know in a previous conversation, you talked about homeless shelter and how you've taken gardening there just in your local community. Would you explain how you did that? It is an enormous issue here in California. I'm sure your listeners have followed some of this news or seen this news, but the situation with people who have lost housing due to economic shifts, due to mental health issues, due to fire or other natural disasters has really been precipitous across California, been to uh, Oregon and Washington as well. It is such an entrenched problem. It's hard really to put our heads around it. Clearly, nobody has because we haven't solved it in any of the big cities in our country. But down in central California, in Santa Cruz, I have been a participant with a fantastic program called the Homeless Garden Project. It is a volunteer and now nonprofit organization in downtown Santa Cruz where they still have quite a challenge with the plight of the unhoused and their impact, not just on the social stresses of the town, but environmentally and just psychically. It's a very unsettling circumstance. This nonprofit got started with the help of a couple of families who had a member experiencing homelessness for a variety of reasons, and all of them different, all of them personal, all of them heartbreaking. What they recognized was that most of these people experiencing homelessness were just like you and me. They wanted greater security, they wanted greater consistency, they wanted to be contributing members. They needed a hand. They needed a place. 
So this garden was developed. It's a, a fairly large, I want to say two acres maybe total. The group of people who are the staff, there's a paid executive director and then multiple program managers. They take a cohort of people experiencing homelessness each year. They train them. They give them counseling. They give them career counseling. They give them counseling for finding housing, which is a nightmare in and of itself in California where housing prices are so high. They teach them to garden and they teach them everything about gardening from the seed to seeding to growing on to potting up to preparing for sale to harvesting to creating value added products from the harvest, whether that's their CSA of vegetables or flowers, as well as bath salts imbued with the herbs from the garden or jams and jellies. And slowly the program has grown and their success has been phenomenal. It is a strategic but also heartfelt endeavor in which this group of people who saw the power of gardening in their own lives, put that together to help address, you're not going to solve it completely, but address the plight of the homeless in their community. One of the myths that they really work to debunk is that most people see the homeless in their communities as people who have come in from somewhere else. They're strangers who came in to take advantage of resources that might be in your town for whatever reason. By and large, that's never true. It's something like 98% of the people who are experiencing homelessness in a given community are directly from that community. That's why they're there and that's why they stay there because it's familiar, it's easy, but it is a fallacy that they are people from somewhere else. While that kind of othering, I think is one of the ways people describe that, that distancing of ourselves from these humans that we see in such despair, that helps us to not feel fully committed to helping. I found that model of the Homeless Garden Project there in Santa Cruz to be one of the most beautiful and uplifting that I have interviewed in my now eight years doing Cultivating Place, Craig. Is there any other idea that we take from the garden to help the greater good in our neighborhoods or in our communities? Yeah. Another one that I'm really compelled by is one out of Cincinnati. The Civic Garden Project and the Civic Garden Center in downtown Cincinnati is one of these great old institutions that was developed into a public garden space as a legacy from a personal home garden and piece of land that when the person who owned it and started it was preparing to be at the end of their life, he had planned for all of this before they died. I think it was just the man, but I, I might be getting my history wrong, but you can find it. Civic Garden Center in Cincinnati, all of their history. This has become one of those fantastic little centers out of which radiates so much good. The director, a woman named Karen Colley, has really very strategically over the past 
10, 15 years, grown the programs that are available at the center from the space of the garden itself and by building the staff she has to meet the needs and address the issues of her own human community. They have developed not just what you would have thought of from the 1930s, 40s, 50s as a standard gardening kind of program in an urban area, not just how to grow European flowers and vegetables in your home garden, but this has now grown into the headquarters for a community gardening network that helps to train and organize and deploy leaders in community gardens. I think they have something like 50 different community gardens across the greater Cincinnati area. They have a native plant propagation program, native plant conservation program, and the staff is involved in both college-level education and high school and lower school student education in Cincinnati. They are involved with the school systems as well as having a lot of volunteer and student-level interns. They are working on not just training gardeners, but training gardener ecologists, training horticultural educators, and training people from the communities themselves. What started as this piece of land and this building and facilities in downtown Cincinnati has now become this fully diversified kind of network that radiates out from the center throughout the city of Cincinnati, which is an incredibly diverse city, socioeconomically and culturally. I just see this as a model of real awareness and real connection to their own place, both human and plant communities, making sure their garden does not become siloed as this kind of white palaces in cities. I think this is one of the issues our horticultural world faces to see the model of the Civic Garden Center in downtown Cincinnati just lights me up and makes me want to have every large botanica garden that hasn't made some of these changes in who they serve and how they serve them go to the Civic Garden Center and have a little schooling. I'd like to shift the conversation to seed. What is the power of seed and what does it mean to you? It's such a little word. It's such a little part of a plant. It's such a little question you just asked, but it actually opens up the entire world. When we look outside our windows, Craig, you there in Atlanta and me here in Northern California, odds are that plants we see in front of us are all plants from the seed-bearing plant world. I'm sure most of your listeners are more or less aware of this, but it's just good as knowledgeable gardeners for us to refresh ourselves every now and then as to what we think we know and what we often just look right past because it feels so commonplace. But the fact is that our planet is unique in the plants that clothe it. Those plants help to create the climate and the atmosphere that we require as humans to live. 
by and large, those plants are seed-bearing flowering plants. In the plant kingdom, there are seed-bearing plants and there are non-seed-bearing plants. Non-seed-bearing plants would be things like ferns that reproduce by spores. Those were the earlier plants, especially when the planet had a lot more water. Over time, 365 million years ago, there became an evolution of plants that began to develop seeds in order to reproduce. Those early seed-bearing plants, the gymnosperms, are the ancient ancestors of what are our conifers, our cone-bearing plants now. In addition to the gymnosperms, there are the flowering seed-bearing plants. Those are the angiosperms. Together, the gymnosperms and the angiosperms are the seed-bearing spermatophytes. Now, this is just a lot of vocabulary, but I like vocabulary, Craig, and it gives you a name for something. The fact is that when we look outside or we travel somewhere on the planet, 80% of the plant life we see is the result of the incredible success of the seed-bearing plants, the angiosperms, the flowering seed-bearing plants. So you then take that another step. It's not just the plants that we see, it's the plants that we eat, it's the plants that are the wood for the houses we live in, they are the plants and the seeds that create most of the food on our table, and for that food that eats other food, that food is eating the seed-bearing plants. It is the cotton shirt on my body right now, and it is the curtains and the fabric, and while wool is coming from sheep, that sheep is eating seed-bearing plants. As I say in my most recent book, What We Sow, seed is the alpha and omega of our lives as we know them. It's crazy when you think about how important they are and how much we take them for granted, but they are really primary actors in our ability to survive, in our economies, and equally as important, in the ecosystems all around us that we are trying to conserve, preserve, rig back together with our gardens and with our better gardening techniques. I write in the book, they are the chassis on which most of our lives actually ride. And it's amazing when you you get that perspective. Where are you seeing the threats to seed? The threats to seed are the threats that we see in so much of our world right now. They are climate change. They are war and the strange illusion that somehow we are outside of our natural processes or above the natural processes around us. They are also certainly... Uh, under threat from our current understanding of seed as a commodity and as such simply a tool to be manipulated and used at our discretion for the greatest profit. They are under threat from us just being complacent about all of those other things. So biodiversity loss, climate change, our cultural structures as they exist right now, are all working against the integrity and the survival of the enormous biodiversity of seeds that we have been gifted from the past as a responsibility to steward 
for the future? There's more to that answer, but I am talking too much as it is, Craig. (laughs) Give us an example of what we can look at as a threat to the sea. Let's go back to my big view, right? That 80% of our plant life are these flowering seed-bearing plants. They have been co-evolving and adapting in their places with their climates, with their geology, with their hydrology, with the changing seasons over time, right? They've been through ice ages. They've been through tropical periods. They have all somehow figured out how to, the ones that we have with us today, figured out how to adapt, evolve, survive, proliferate. They consist of about 300,000 different species of angiosperms. Only about 240,000 of those have been described and actually documented by scientists to date. So the guesstimate of that other 60,000 remains out there. Many of those with climate change and biodiversity loss, deforestation, forest fires, whatever, in those spaces of great biodiversity, we are sometimes losing them before we even can get to finding them, documenting them, describing them. These 300,000 plants, species, as I said, have been co-evolving and adapting for 365 million years. They know stuff we don't know. They have figured out how to adapt in the cases of extreme heat, extreme cold, fire, drought, flood. Yet we take them so for granted that we fail to see the lessons that they offer to us every single day. Even our invasive plants are teaching us lessons if we care to pay attention as to how things grow, survive, proliferate, feed, adapt, contribute, compete. Yet we are at this period of time of extreme biodiversity loss, which is in large part nothing but our hubris and arrogance that we know better and that I want it this way right now all the time, that it's way too inefficient to protect and preserve hundreds of species of corn when just these three species or varieties of corn that have been hybridized, then genetically modified, then treated with chemicals are able to be planted out on hundreds of millions of acres in the United States today. That right there summarizes a storyline in which we have taken, exploited, and manipulated one species of plant, the corn, that is a sacred and storied plant in North America that has been a staple food for the peoples of its native ranges for hundreds of thousands of years. Yet in the last 150 years, we have reduced that diversity of hundreds, if not thousands, of varieties down to two or three because that is efficient. They store they ship well, and they are modified and patented. So who cares if those modified and patented plants, because of wind pollination and huge tracts of monoculture across the United States, then contaminate and displace 
the great diversity of the other corn varieties that have sustained humans and ecosystems for thousands of years. That right there shows you a mindset in which efficiency and profit are always going to trump diversity and integrity. That right there is one of the greatest threats to seed, is the mindset that we have taken on in our modern cultural structures. It has been to the great diminishment of biodiversity and cultural richness. There's all kinds of radiating consequences to that, not just the displacement and or loss of the great diversity of corn varieties, but with that chemical input in the form of neonicotinoids and pre-emergent and pesticide, the herbicide like Roundup Ready treatments for these kinds of seeds. We are also degrading the pollinator systems, the water, the soil because of the runoff from these chemicals and persistence of these chemicals. This is on hundreds of millions of acres. The EPA now estimates that of the corn grown in the United States, which is a bajillion dollar industry for all kinds of things, for your corn oil, for your feedlot feed, for biofuels, all kinds of things. Of that corn, all that is not organic is now chemically modified in some way with quote unquote help with pest issues or with the herbicides. That is an incredible load of chemicals being put into our world, not only a threat to the seed and to the diversity of seed and to the health of that seed, but also to us and the environments we live in. So if we take a non-modified corn, how do we take those and benefit from them? That is, again, a very short question to which you're going to get a very long answer. But there are multiple ways. One of the greatest ways is that we don't actually know. But here's what we do know, is that we don't know what are all the benefits of the diversity of all the corns. But I would share with you that the indigenous peoples who, who, who noticed, chose, selected, and then grew these corns forward had their reasons, whether they were the best grinding corn, the best preserving corn with smoke and lye, the best boiling corn, the best colorful corn, the best ritual corn, the best drought adapted, the best heat adapted, the best altitude adapted. There are reasons. And each of these seeds, this great diversity of seed that has been selected and cared for by humans coming down across all the lines of people on this planet, they were chosen for a reason. They were carried forward for a reason. And by and large, they most likely were not frivolous reasons. They were reasons born of experience and then passed forward. But the greatest answer here is nothing short of just genetic diversity. That when we have 500 million acres, I'm making that number up, don't quote me on it, I have actual numbers in the book, but when we have X number of million acres planted out in a single corn variety, if something happens to that corn variety, then we have millions of acres of no corn, right? If all of that 
X million number of acres is planted out in a genetically modified corn that is wind pollinated, that means all of the other genetic diversity of corn within miles of that genetically modified corn is at risk of being contaminated with that genetic modification. So then it too becomes reliant on chemical support to keep living and surviving because it hasn't learned how to adapt. It has been chemically treated in order to adapt. That needs the constant input of that chemical and a human giving it that chemical. Whereas the corn that was selected and supported and chosen by humans, that can be planted into the ground, come true from seed, and sustain generations of genetic biodiversity going forward. That great sexual mashup of genes crossing with each other naturally and then producing the seedling variation that you get, that is what is biodiversity. It's the genetic diversity continuing to express itself. I understand and appreciate keeping as much diversity as we can, but I also think we've got to feed all these people and we've got to feed those people efficiently. I'm trying to make the connection of how we can do that with these other more genetic pure species or varieties of corn. How do we make that connection? This is, again, a very often contentious and very complicated question and answer. The fact is, We've been asking this question for at least 120 years. How do we feed a growing population? We've never actually answered the question, despite all the genetic modification, despite all the chemical proliferation. We have not solved world hunger. We have created biodiversity loss and climate change. After my several years of research, looking at all of the different sides, I am not on principle anti us as humans experimenting with the many skills and tools we have to see if we can do better or get better. Like humans have been doing this since humans walked the earth and interacted with their plants. I love that red rose, but what if I could get that pink rose? Or what if I could get a bigger apple, pear, whatever, right? Like We've always been messing with the plants we have to get plants we think we also want. But this question of feeding a growing world population, we were sold the idea post-World War I, post-World War II, that it was up to us to chemically modify, to become more efficient, to diminish our offerings, and that's how we were going to do it. We were going to plant more acres with this great yielding whatever it is, soy, wheat, corn, but it hasn't panned out, Craig. It hasn't worked. We haven't fed all the people in all the places who are impoverished and dying of starvation. But what we have done is destroyed a whole lot of soil, destroyed a whole lot of water, and created 18,000 chemicals that are on the agro-industrial market available to you and me in the United States today. They have proliferated around the world, and they have, in essence, in many places, uh, according to the research I did, destroyed the networks of small, diversified community and family farms and land-based peoples around the world. Like We went into India, we being the United States government, the Ford 
and Monsanto and other large corporations developed this idea of the Green Revolution, rolled it out in these third world countries in our often arrogant and bullying way, said, we know better, we can do this better, we're going to do this on your land. And we haven't solved the problem, but we have created a lot of damage to the ecosystems there and to the traditional farming practices that once lived there. Now, a lot of research is now showing that, in fact, the diversified farm, small holding, this, the definition of that changes in different places. But we're talking about something greater than 20 acres, less than 2,000 acres, that has a diversity of crops, that has a, an inclusion of wildlife and habitat corridors, that has both wildlife conservation and intense crop areas organically or naturally cared for, that these spaces that are trying to protect not only crop yield, but also diversity of life, they have greater yields per acre than any other kind of farming, than smaller farming or than larger farming. They create the greatest yield per acre, but they also support the greatest diversity, not just of plant life, but of fungal life, of migrating wildlife, of water health, the, the water is filtered, through the different variety of crops and methods for tending to the land. At this point, and I'm not saying this is the one and only solution to everything on our world, but at this point, I'm going to put every single dollar and vote I have behind trying to support those experiments rather than experimenting with hundreds of millions of acres destroying water, soil, and land-based cultural connection. That's where I'm at. I, I don't think the last 120 years has panned out as well as we wanted it to. And I think we can experiment with better ways, including the almost complete exclusion of chemical input, except for as a very last measure. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It'll take yeah. time. How does a seed bank work? It's not fair that you ask such questions. You need to talk more because I am talking too much, Craig. This way, I don't have to be the expert. <laughs> We're going to go back just a little bit. So I started Cultivating Place in 2016. It was the sort of outgrowth of a smaller program that I started in 2007. I hosted and produced for eight years. It grew up into Cultivating Place. In 2017, that's when I was approached by Timber Press to write my first book, Earth in Her Hands, about those 75 women leaders. When I was researching that book, that is when I really honed in on the seed keepers and seed people that I had been interviewing already over the course of the, the previous years. In the earth in her hands, there was a whole kind of thread of the women in seed keeping. This is very usual in land-based cultures, that it is the women who are the seed keepers. They are the ones who go do the harvesting, they select, they then save the seeds, care for the seed, and then share the seed forward, not only between seasons, but between generations. 
In The Earth in Her Hands, I profiled five different women in the seed industry. That sort of focus on these specific people in this specific field really highlighted for me just how complex the seed world is and how many different arenas in our world are impacted by how we care for seed, why we care for seed, who is caring for seed. One of those ways was seed banks. What's interesting is that in my second book, Under Western Skies, in which I worked with a photographer, Caitlin Atkinson, to document about 40 different gardens across the U.S. West that are really modeling ecological methods, native plant introduction and diversity and integration of the garden with its climate, its natural processes. Gardens that were working with their natural conditions, not against them. One of the things that was interesting in researching and interviewing those gardens and gardeners was how many of them relied on the knowledge of the seed keepers, seed banks, seed scientists of their area to inform the plants they were going to use in their garden. And several of them were all, like almost 100%, seed grown from local ecotypes that had been documented, saved, and preserved by organizations in those areas. So that gave me this whole other perspective on the importance of seed banks in our world. I began to research much more deeply when I turned to writing What We Sow that just came out in September. Humans have been saving seed, storing seed, sharing seed since they have been interacting with plants. The idea of a seed bank is ancient. It is simply the idea of collecting your seed and storing it, using some of it each year and replenishing some of your seed bank each year, but also holding some of it in case there's an issue, like in case there's a fire or a flood or a late frost, whatever. The word the, the phrase seed bank also refers, which I love, to the natural store of seed in our soils at all times. That's the natural seed bank. So you think about when you see a farmer plow their field or we turn over a plot of soil in order to get it ready to plant something new, and there is this crazy germination of the seed that was in the soil but that hadn't had the light or the sun or the water, they germinate. And that shows you just how much seed is in the soil that is all around us. That's the natural seed bank. In the late 1800s, the Russian government put all of those ancient and natural ideas together to create an organized, institutional, strategic collection and preservation of specifically seeds of food importance, so the seed we eat or the seed that grows the plants we eat, economically important food crops. That was the focus of that first organized governmental seed bank. Since then, the idea has been propagated across all countries, and most countries have seed banks in which they are trying to preserve the economically important crops or species of their regions. 
they generally start by focusing on food crops so that if there were some major catastrophe, we have the necessary seed to replant and feed people. This has grown over time to also include seed banks that focus on natural biodiversity. For instance, the USDA has their large germplasm preservation center, germplasm being a word that scientists use to describe all of the things from which you can propagate a new plant, a seed, a cutting, tissue culture, cells. The USDA began their seed bank in the early 1900s by focusing on economically important food plants, but they have since diversified into native plant diversity as well. This is true across the globe. In general, governments, conservationists, farmers, everybody, native plant advocates and wildlife biology people understand that it's very important that we first have conservation on the ground in place. Here in Northern California, in our native oak woodlands, it's important that we conserve our actual oak woodlands. But it's also important that we save all the seed we can from all the species that make up an oak woodland in a seed bank somewhere so that in the event of some catastrophe, we have the genetics to restore that ecosystem. All food crops were originally native plants somewhere. They all were developed from native wild progenitors, they're called, is a mistake and a serious miscalculation as we look towards a future that we would like to feel more secure in our food and our environment. The seed banks in general have a strategic plan. They focus on what they're going to collect. They collect it, they store it, they document it, and then they have protocols for how that seed is tested, germinated, grown out, and then replenished with fresh seed over time in order to maintain the viability of the collection over time, right? So if the USDA started their collections sometime in the early 1900s, many of those seeds won't be viable if we just left them there since then. Each seed, as we as gardeners know, is a little different. Each one has a different viability range. Each one has different dormancy requirements of dark, cool, dry. So there's a lot of science and research and tweaking of that science and research and knowledge and therefore protocols in seed science as we go along. The fine-tuning of what we exactly mean by cool, dark, and dry has changed over time. There's a lot of specifics there. But the final part of this very long-winded answer to your question is that in general, most seed banks have a policy by which you can request to receive some of that seed, whether you are a breeder or you are a researcher or you are a culture who is trying to reconnect with your cultural seed, primarily indigenous tribal peoples across North America, can write a letter to the USDA through their GRIN, which is an acronym, G-R-I-N, network, and say, I believe you have this specific sacred 
and traditional corn of my peoples in my area, and I would like a sample in order to grow it out and reintroduce it to my community. There are all kinds of ways that you can request samples, and if they have enough to lend out based on where their collection stands, they will send you a sample. If we go into a seed bank, I know there's different sizes, as, as small as a refrigerator or- Big as, right, an island in the Arctic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When we go in there, is it just pallets and pallets of the same variety? Or is it just like starter seed to reintroduce and then, but it's going to take time to build it back up and make it reintroduced to whatever area that needs to be reintroduced? It depends on the seed bank and it depends on how established they are, how well supported they are, and what their goals were from the beginning. For example, I have visited quite a few now. Going down to the California Botanic Garden, which has one of the largest seed banks for the biodiversity of the California Floristic Province, and they are working within a network of other seed banks to conserve the seed of all of the native plants in the Floristic Province, starting from the most common and the most rare down to the whole group as understood currently. When you go to visit the seed bank, it is not pallets and pallets and pallets because seed is quite small and the seed of many plants is quite small. So you can have a pretty significant collection of, say, one native salvia species in a relatively small container that is then kept and documented in a pretty large freezer. It's multiple cabinet freezers, multiple storage racks in a cold, dark room. In the case of native seed search down in Tucson. But the key is if they have the capacity in funds and staff and space to be working at the best practices level for seed storage collection and research. They don't just have one species and they don't just have seed of one species from one plant or even one community of plants. Let's go back to the native salvia. There is a well-known salvia native to California called white sage. It is a sacred sage of the native peoples in central coastal California. It is Salvia apiana. It has tiny little black seeds. You would never want to collect just enough seed from one plant or one community because then you would only be getting one phylogenetic expression of that species. So one of the keys is to get a whole variety of samples from different communities in different conditions, one right on the coast, one in the foothills, one in a garden, one very dry, one in a damper seat, whatever it might be, you get a variety of genetic lineage, and that is what makes your collection. And there is a formula that the seed scientists will use, which is based on where the plant's found, what its ranges are, and trying to get a sample from as big a portion of that range as you possibly can. Then you will have the most adaptive information possible in the seed you are storing and will share forward, if that makes sense. It does. Let's talk about your newest book, What We Sow, 
It was just published and released in September, so could you introduce us to it? I think I have been waxing poetic about it now for a very long time in these answers to the questions you have asked me, but what we sow on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds was published by Timber Press in September of this year. I determined for myself that I wanted to do this research and write this book because in March of 2020, when we were all grounded by COVID and we were faced with a world in many ways we didn't understand, one of the ways in which I was all of a sudden clear that I didn't understand was how the seed supply in that moment of early COVID could be so easily disturbed by a pandemic. And at that moment, when I went to order seeds for my spring garden and my orders came back with out of order, back stocked, not available, I was really confused by that and a little scared by that. All of a sudden aware that as a mid-50s person who'd been gardening my whole life, have a professional gardening mother and wildlife biologist father, I had no idea how the seed I purchased from the sellers I love actually made it to those sellers, into those little packets, and then to me. I thought to myself, as a gardener, especially someone who talks about gardening and writes about gardening, I should know more about this. I was compelled to kind of review everything I did know, refresh my memory about things I might have been taught but had forgotten and things that I had never been taught, then to continue to research the people in the world who are working to support, protect, advocate, uplift the importance of seed in our world. There are many storylines in the book that document the seed keepers on the ground doing this work, as well as more about the natural history of my place, mostly as a model for other people to say, there are a lot of seeds around me all the time that I just walk by every day. What might they have to teach me? That was the impetus for the book. I studied for another two years before turning it in, and then it was published this year. Yeah, I particularly like the journaling style, but then you inserted these moments of teaching, journaling of your observations and what was going on at the time. I found that very interesting approach to writing the book. I ultimately came to that format because it was what became clear to me as the natural way I made sense of seed. I follow seasonal cycle of seed, not just in my place, the oaks and the grasses and the wildflowers and whatever, but also the seed in my garden. When do the catalogs arrive? When do we plant? When do we harvest? Whatever we might be doing, what became clear to me was just how much seed was a part of my everyday life. I just didn't pay attention to it prior to this several years of focus, which I distilled down into this one year of the book. So that journaling aspect of the book was both a way to try and manage 
and try and notice all of the information about the ways in which seed was important in our lives, whether it was because the oaks in my area were producing their acorns and acorn woodpeckers were all excited about the harvest and crop this year, or the invasive plants were putting their seed out, or as I said, the seed catalogs arrived, or there was an article in the newspaper. The research was often really heavy and sometimes technical in a way that I don't spend most of my life at that level. I almost needed those personal and natural history of my place journaling interludes to allow me to breathe. One, so I didn't get so stressed about the state of our world, but also too, so I could just ground back into why this was important to me. It was important to me that this wasn't just an intellectual exercise, but that it reminded me about the importance and beauty of this aspect of our world as gardeners, just as humans, to be honest. With over 400 episodes of your award-winning podcast and radio show, Cultivating Place, how have you evolved from the original inspiration to where you are now? I would say that I have evolved a couple of ways that are profoundly meaningful and important to me. I have plenty of evolving and learning to still do, (laughs) which I think is true of us as gardeners. No matter how old we are or how long we've been gardening, there's always more to learn. I knew when I started Cultivating Place that it was important to me to have deeper conversations with a greater diversity of people doing things in the garden world that were outside of the purview of the standard gardening media at that time. If I started my first program in 2007, part of the point of it was to not just talk about what our gardens looked like often represented by a beautiful picture in a glossy magazine or book, to not only talk about them like that, but to get beyond that sort of two-dimensional, sometimes superficial approach into a greater conversation about why we garden. And to not just talk about how to garden, because If I'm 58 and I've been doing this for 55 years, I know a lot. I don't need that much how-to anymore. I need some. I'm always going to need some. There are always improving methods or new plants or new ideas. But the fact is, I don't need another article on the thrillers and fillers and spillers to put in my container gardens this year. But I do always want more about what the garden means to people, because it is through those stories and perspectives that my idea of what a garden is, what a gardener does, what a garden's impact is, that's how it's expanded. I knew that was important to me when I started Cultivating Place, but I don't think I understood just how hungry other people were for that level of conversation from a great many more voices, not just the same 15, 20, maybe at the outside 30 gardening experts around the country. People wanted to hear from 
the small home gardener in somewhere Utah about what their gardening experience was. And not so that they could look like that, but so they could grow from that shared story and experience. That has become even more true through times of economic stress, through the pandemic, through social justice, discomfort, and hopefully reset in many ways. People want to talk about why gardens are important and to then hopefully live out that importance even more each season. That is what I find. That is what I hope the voice of Cultivating Place is part of that movement in our world. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? It depends on where they live when I say that. I think any answer is always going to be contingent on what you want from your garden and where that garden actually exists. The first thing I would say is I, I would always like a garden to be designed with the climate and the natural history of the space taken into account. So not just me moving to California from Colorado, from a Northeast extended family saying, I really want my camellias and I really want my roses and I really want, oh, maybe some azaleas here. But instead to say, what are the constraints, the challenges, the opportunities of this garden? What is my water source? Where is that water source from? What is my soil type? What are the wildlife and the native plants of my area? How can I include them and include some of my sentimental plants? How can my garden not be a drain on the natural resources of my place, whether that is water or soil or air, but how can it be a contributor to my community, to my wildlife, to my native plant diversity, and to my own life? I wish that every garden, whether it's designed by a professional or it's designed by the person themselves, asks some of those questions before they ask, what do I want and what should it look like? What's a garden myth you'd like to smash? That there's one way, there's one style, there's one beauty. I, I think this is a harder thing perhaps for people in the Southeast to hear and understand immediately. But the fact is that west of the Rocky Mountains, west of even the Mississippi River, Craig, for us to be sold the idea of an English garden as the height of beauty in our world is a myth that has prolonged the reign of the turf lawn as just an incredible drain in our world. It has really prolonged on life support even the idea of a set group of plants as being good garden plants, no matter where you live. I think that has done enough damage and we can go ahead and get more creative, more intentional, and a whole lot better gardens going forward if we can get past that image of that beautiful English garden. What is your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is sitting in a greenhouse in late winter, early spring. I was probably about three, and my mother had 
taken me, as she did, I believe, most days, to the greenhouse where she worked, Berthed Greenhouse in Berthed, Colorado. She and the women she worked with were working at the potting table, sowing seeds and pricking little seedlings along and potting other things along and talking. I was playing in the potting soil underneath the potting table. And there is just that joy, which many people will know, especially in colder climates where you go into a warm greenhouse and the smell of warm, humid soil is such a just decadent luxury in winter. That to me, mingled with the sound of these women's voices, one of them being my mother's, it is perfect happiness, safety, and delight to me. That smell it's one of my earliest memories, period. Why did you decide to pursue gardening as a profession? It really pursued me. I went to school and got my degree in world literature. I went to work as an editor and writer in the tech world for Microsoft's Encarta Encyclopedia. I just kept coming back around to, we should write encyclopedia articles about all the greatest gardens in the world, all the greatest gardeners in the world. They were kind of like, oh, I don't know. Then I had my daughters and I started doing freelance writing and the career has just really pulled me. I don't want to say dragged me, but it has pulled me along from there. All this time and all these interviews, surely you've got a funny garden story that you can tell us. I think the funnest garden story, which I still tell to this day, is the story of any young, I'm going to say mother, because so often it is the mothers who have small children at home, but more and more perhaps it's fathers as well. So a parent of young children who are, the parents are also gardeners. There is this great, dilemma of wanting to garden with your children and yet also having your children just mess up everything in your garden. One of the ways in which children do this is they always want to pick the flowers with you and they don't pick them right, right? They're little children. So they just go and pop the heads off these flowers. An older woman gardener said to me, the rule I have is that every child five and older is allowed to use clippers. I train them how to cut a flower, and the rule is they are allowed to pick as many flowers as they are old. This limits the damage they can do. Your three-year-old gets three, your five-year-old gets five, your seven-year-old gets seven, and by then they lose interest until they're about 22, and then they can pick as many flowers as they want. That served me well with two small girls who were raised literally raised in my garden with me at all times. And I am still not baffled exactly, but I am still enthusiastic when other adults say to me, but how do we get young kids interested in the garden? And pretty much the answer has always been and will always be just put them out there. Just put them out there. They are interested. They are curious. They will learn. They will play. They will experiment. They will get dirty will be fine. What's the most valuable garden advice that someone gave you that you still use today? Don't give up. Keep trying. 
I think we had so many new gardeners enter the field during the COVID lockdown. And the greatest advice comes from our seeds. That is, you don't just plant one seed. You put out hundreds of seeds with the hope that a few will find ground and grow to the maturity they are capable of. If you are not successful with one plant, try another plant or try that plant 20 more times. Tweak the conditions, tweak the water, tweak the light, tweak the heat, tweak something, but don't give up. Plants do not succeed with every seed they put out there and nor will you and it will be okay. Keep gardening. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Definitely my mother. Definitely my mother. As a professional gardener, she was fun, she was smart, she was creative, she was generous, she was an enthusiastic includer of all people at all times in all things gardening. I would say the second person may very well be Robin Wall Kimmerer. Her and or Jamaica Kincaid are two women writer gardeners who really expanded my understanding of the importance and depth that gardens are and can be and should be. What's your most valuable garden mistake? There are just so many, Craig, but here is a recurring mistake. I walk around the garden and I see a blank spot and I think to myself, why is that spot blank? And I plant something in it. And then come high heat summer here in Northern California, and the plant I planted in the blank space dies. And the reason that it dies is that because there is no irrigation there and or the irrigation doesn't hit there because something is blocking it or otherwise there is a reason. And then I have to remind myself, ah, that's why that space was blank. It is a lesson I try to remind myself of. Every spring when I go to fill the blank spots, it is a lesson I perennially make the error of believing I will remember, I will fix the irrigation, I will prune the blocking plant. But I think that also just speaks to my hopeful and optimistic outlook as well. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have my greatest connection to the divine. Tell us about your garden. It is a, I say small, and when I say small, I don't exactly know the measurements, but it is a standard small suburban lot. So maybe it is 25 feet one way, 40 feet the other way, minus the footprint of the house, of course. It is just like me. It is a little bit chaotic inclusion of everything all mashed up together. There are roses, there are native salvias, there are manzanitas, there's grasses, there are herbs, there are non-native plants, and there are things in flower almost all the time. It is fragrant and it is fun. It is often a little bit messy, sometimes a little bit neglected, but very forgiving. I have a lot of herbs. On this small lot, I have a large self-seeded cottonwood, which is native. I have two self-seeded valley oak trees who are only about five years old, so they'll get much bigger. They may become a problem. 
But I also have a lovely red bud tree and I have a crab apple. So I have a lot of trees for my little space, but they all make me happy. And it brings me much more joy than it does fruits and vegetables, but it is dynamically different every day, every week, every season. What did you learn from your garden this past year or this past season that you'll apply next year? Oh, that is a very, you are giving me the great benefit of the doubt there with that that question that I would actually learn a lesson and already apply it next year as a lifelong gardener. One of the lessons is that I have too much shade to grow some of the sun-loving plants that I originally put into the garden. When I moved in in 2014, the back garden was 100% covered in decomposed granite, which the previous owner had done as a kind of water-wise solution for a, a garden. Clearly, they were not gardeners. John and I spent a lot of time mostly John, bringing in yards and yards of soil to make it level, to make garden spaces. At that time, I had a lot of sun, but now I have more shade with those trees. The one lesson is I need more shade plants and fewer sun plants. I need to be a little more on top of pruning my trees so that I keep some of the sun that I have. That is my goal for next year. We will find out how I do. What plan are you in love with this week? Because I am making my Christmas and winter solstice wreaths, Craig, I am really in love with one of our native smaller-leaved manzanitas called Manz- Arctostaphylus Big Sur. And it is a selection of a native species that has small leaves and branching tips. It's a broadleaf evergreen, which is a little hard to come by as a native plant in an arid environment. It has beautiful little bell-shaped flowers like manzanitas have in early spring for the hummingbirds and early waking bumblebees. But it is the perfect Christmas or solstice wreath addition because it looks like some combination of holly or boxwood. So it has this formality to it, but it is very textural and just a perfect native plant seasonal evergreen. So I'm in love with that this week. (laughs) We've covered a lot. Is there anything you wish I had asked you? The one thing that I would leave with is gardening brings us great joy. The better we can engage with that joy and the the peace and the satisfaction and the clear head and the kind heart that I leave the garden with every time I get out there, the more we can activate that, I think the stronger, better our world will be. Jennifer, tell us how people may connect with you. The best place to find me is through the website, cultivatingplace.com or through Instagram, cultivating underscore place. It's really the only social media platform I interact with directly. Things kind of flow to Facebook from there. I try and keep up on LinkedIn, but anywhere I am, it's always some variation of cultivating place. 
This has been episode 141, Cultivating Change, The Power of Gardens, with Jennifer Jewell on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Jennifer. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.